Hey y'all, welcome back. I am Ted King, and this is the 117th episode of King of the Ride podcast. Here we are on the King family late summer, early fall, two-month road trip. We have been tallying the miles all across the West, ticking off events in Montana, Utah, Colorado. We just wrapped up the third of this year's three Ted's Excellent Adventure Rides. That was this past weekend with the very good folks of Renee Harris out of Seattle, Washington. That ride was the bike packing event that I spearheaded at the start of the year with three events all across the country all throughout the year. And this edition took place in the Cascade Mountains. Furthermore, it was on this lengthy trip that we swung through western Colorado for a mountain bike extravaganza in the likes of Crested Butte, Gunnison, Telluride, which is all to say that it was on this trip that we had the privilege to settle down for a bit at Dave Ween's house, to spread out, to do some laundry, to take a shower indoors as opposed to inside of a van. And it's where we had this conversation. This was just on the tail end of Keegan's smashing record-breaking victory at Leadville, so given that Dave is the six-time Leadville champion, among other star-studded accolades, it was really fun to talk shop all across the spectrum of shop these days, which includes some fascinating stories of early mountain biking, how big mountain skiing fits into the puzzle, the wave of Europeans coming over and taking over the sport in the direction of mountain biking for a while, how family life works its way into his career, and what Dave is up to now as the executive director of IMBA, the International Mountain Bicycling Association. Dave, you will notice, is a terrific storyteller, and this made for an educational, very entertaining conversation. Before we kick off this conversation with this Mountain Bike Hall of Famer, I wanted to remind you that I've started every day with AG1 for well over a year now. I love it. It is simple. It is tasty. It is easy. And it has made my life better by providing the rich nutrients that I need, very akin to a multivitamin, but derived from real foods. I also don't have to tote around a dozen bottles of vitamin pills. Instead, it is one scoop or one of those handy travel packs that we are always traveling with. It's that into a bottle, add some water, shake. My day is immediately better. I want your day to be better too. So visit drinkag1.com slash tedking to get a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. Once again, the website is drinkag1.com slash tedking and you will see what all the fuss is about. Thank you very much for listening. My friends, next up, Dave Weens. You guys been on the road um let me look at my watch today is august 24th just shy of one month okay and it'll be two months total with the the tail end is a wedding on september 23rd so a month from now okay in san francisco that only qualifier meaning we are basically as far away from home as we could possibly be at that point so then it's another right. what i mean at that point i think we'll be a little bit stir crazy or, or right Island fever, cabin fever, yeah. van fever, you're ready to get home. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it's been a blast. It's right. Um, you live in New England? We live in Vermont. Vermont. Um, what part? 
just outside of Burlington, small town called Richmond. Okay. Great terra trail system, Richmond Mountain Trails. Right, right. Um, and we did. We did a, this year has been a bit anomalous in the amount of travel we've done. The van lived. We went out to California in the spring, where we do a whole bunch of work in Sonoma, um, and then used the van a to get out there, but then also bopping around. We weren't living in the van at that point. Okay. And often what we do with the van, this particular trip for this week, we are purely van lifing it. But then the whole two month trip that we're on is often visiting family and friends and right. get out and take a shower and do laundry. Sure, sure. So as much as I appreciate the the offer for laundry, it's not like we're on a two month right. laundry free trip. <laughs> so then we left the van in Boulder, went home for two months and then smack in the middle of the summer, came back, picked it up, went to Montana, went to Park City, came here. We'll zip around the west western Colorado, back to Park City, to Seattle, to the wedding, to home. Oh wow, that's some bopping around, but it's it's a lot of miles and yeah. heck, it's a lot of fun. Right, right, yeah. Um, if I'm looking at my phone, I'm looking at questions. Sure, sure. Okay, I won't do it. To who? <laughs> or if Siri will be talking to me. <laughs> um, okay, the second to last time that you and I exchanged messages. The King family was in the van, and we were driving through Colorado, and we, at that point, were in Grand Junction. And I texted you, and I said, hey, do you live here? Like, let's sit down, let's do a podcast. And it turns out, no, you don't live in Grand Junction. You live in Gunnison, which is where we are right now on this trip a year later. Setting that up as a jump-off point, we've talked a little bit about how much time you've been here. What brought you to Gunnison, Colorado? Uh, college, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, grew up in metropolitan, suburban Denver. Okay. And um, as a teenager, got into uh, whitewater kayaking and skiing. You know, it's really, those were my passions. Wasn't uh, academics, but, uh, you know, still wanted to go, to go to college. And if you lived in Denver and you liked the mountains and you wanted to go to a school in the mountains, you went to either Fort Lewis and Durango or you went to what was Western State College at the time, uh-huh. Western Colorado University now, uh-huh. in Gunnison. And, uh, I just, I think I chose Western because it was closer to Denver. Uh, Durango's pretty far away. Yes. And uh, I was enamored with Crested Butte as a ski area, too. I'd heard good things about it. So mm-hmm. came to came to school at Western as an 18-year-old and, and uh, you know, really, you know, was kind of on and off with my with my academic career. It took me eight years total to get through. Mm-hmm. Five years of actually going to school and, you know, took a winter off and actually lived in Durango. And pursued ski racing as an old athlete, no which was a great experience because, you know, I learned a lot and realized it's really hard to compete with um, athletes who have been doing this since they were little kids uh-huh. uh, when you jump into it as an 18-year-old and you just don't have the, the same experience. But learned a lot, came back to school, uh, did another year, took a couple more years off, spent a, a winter ski bumming in Jackson Hole. Nice. And that was that was great and informative and, and all of that. Um, spent the summer in Alaska, you know, kayaking and, and um, actually became exposed to mountain biking. Did my first mountain biking races in Alaska. I'm not kidding. Uh, had come, a, I mean, I rode a bicycle as a kid, just rode it all over Denver. That was my, that was my freedom. It was really important to me to have a bicycle and yeah. I would actually, no, I don't need to ride. I want to I want to ride my bike. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So um, was always a, a, you know, always loved riding my bike. And then the mountain bike, I knew about it, but I couldn't afford one. And they were brand, they were pretty new in the late '80s, mid '80s. New as a concept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they were they were new. So uh, eventually, I got one uh, in high school. I worked in a, a specialty 
uh, sporting goods store and they were a bike shop. But uh, ironically, the owners were like, yeah, we're not going to bring mountain bikes in. That's kind of a fad. It's probably going to disappear. <laughs> but we had we carried specialized <laughs> accessories. So we knew the specialized rep. And uh-huh. in 1985, I bought a closeout stump jumper from him for around $500. And yeah. um, it was a great bike. It was too big for me. He says, you know, hey, this is the size you need. It was way too big for me. Yeah. Um, but I had that and then moved to Jackson Hole. For the winter, so I didn't really get to ride it much. Did a little bit up there and then um, took it to Alaska that next summer and rode my first trail riding was in Denali of all places. I was working as a raft guide up there. Wow. And so I uh, would put a bell on it because we were like, oh, you got you know, you put a bell on it for the grizzly bears. Bear bells. And yeah. I'm wearing jeans and flannel. I don't, uh-huh. I'm not a cyclist. I don't know too much about, about cycling. Yeah. And then happened to just jump into a couple races that summer. You know, interestingly enough, Alaska had the Mountain Bike Association of Alaska. They did a bike. Oh, no it was a thing clear back then. Yeah. That they were racing uh, the the mountains and or the the, the frozen rivers actually. Uh-huh. And that was fun. It was it was intense. Uh, I love to compete. I think that's why ski racing appealed to me. As a kid, I, I played football for four years and, and just loved that. Then we started moving around a lot. I never really got back into high school sports. But realized, you know, in high school that, you know, I love to compete and uh, yeah. enjoyed that. So when then, you said moving around a lot, family moving around yeah, or you just, you were on the move? Family moving around a lot, just within Denver. Yeah. Uh, so changing schools sure. and, you know, had been in this, you yep. know, sort of, you know, stable environment. And then we went over here and I d- decided not to play football or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, you know, probably happy to continue to play football at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so then it just... And then when I moved back to Gunnison in 87, uh, a lot of my friends were racing mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. And so I just just slotted in with them and started going to the local races. And uh, at that time, you know, Ned Overend lived here, Mike Closer. I mean, there was a, uh-huh. some of the best pros in the sport lived in Colorado. Yeah. And then they combined the pro and the expert class. I raced expert that first year. Okay. And so you're immediately racing against these guys. You know, you're watching them object pedal away from you. <laughs> But uh, so it was, a, you know, it was a, a, a very special time to yep. be involved. It was brand new. It was yeah. small. Um, who knew where, where it could go? Yeah. What did it, what did it feel like at the time? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. We look back at the growth and, and booming state of mountain biking. As an upstart niche sport, do you feel like, does it feel as simple as that? Do you just feel like you're in a niche sport? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it was interesting because it was, um, it checked a lot of boxes for me because I love the outdoors. I love the mountain. I love to explore. Mm-hmm. And here was this vehicle that, and then I lived in this place, Gunnison. And right. then there was no trail forks. There was no <laughs> project. You, right, you right, were just right. sort of like, I had, I had seven and a half minute topos. And if you know a seven and a half minute topo is a, a small map. What does that mean? Seven and a half minutes? That's just how they size oh, sure. them. So yep, a yep, trails yep, illustrated yep. map is like, eight seven and a half minute maps so yeah. i had i had literally the seven and a half minute paper maps i had stacks of them and uh-huh. i would just look for roads and there weren't a lot of trails around here crested butte obviously those pioneers up there had had discovered those trails and there were some paper maps of the crested butte rides yep. and there was enough local culture here to say oh you know the the fossil ridge ride or the the dr park ride 403 401 there were those rides yeah. that you could just go do yeah Around Gunnison, there wasn't much, but there were a lot of roads, mm-hmm. and I would just explore, and it was so fun. Yeah. Uh, then the racing, I wasn't that—I liked it, and it was something to do, and it was something to shoot for, but it wasn't like I was just totally focused on racing. No, sure. I, I, I got that way pretty quickly, but in my mind, I, I just explore as training, and then I race when I go to a race, and 
You know, yeah. I didn't know what training was. Yeah. I had yeah. no clue how you would train uh-huh. or what tra- to me training was just going out on these long rides. Right, right. All right. the time and exploring and, and you know, bushwhacking and you know, just no, nah, that didn't work. I'm never doing that again. Or wow, this was amazing. Yeah. How did the evolution of your training occur? Mm-hmm. Was it was it showing up at the races and seeing, okay, how did Ryder XYZ, how did Ned Overing go that much faster? Or Yeah, I, I was going to the races and I, I never really felt like I, I, I rode during a race the way I felt sometimes when I was out by myself. I'm like, man, if I could ever feel this way. And of course, when you're out there by yourself, you're probably not going as hard. So of course sure. you feel good. Right, right. But, um, and then somehow I just, I got the idea of racing, uh, of, of training in my head uh-huh. and I don't know how, but somehow Greg LeMond's book came to my attention. Okay. Greg LeMond's complete book of cycling. There's a yep. chapter in there called yep. Training and Fitness for the Cyclist. And I <laughs> devoured that chapter. And it was microcycles and macrocycles and uh-huh. weekly structure and intervals and all this stuff. And then the other thing was there was a magazine at the time, which was magazines were the social media of the day, uh-huh. uh, called Ned Overend's Training Tips. No way. And I said to Ned, I go, Ned, <laughs> well, you know, what is this? Is this bullshit? He goes, you know what? Those guys actually, they, they, I, I showed them something just thinking I was showing it to them, and they printed it all. Huh. So I'm like, okay, well, there's some important nuggets in here. So yeah. I just basically took Greg LeMond's chapter and Ned Overend's training tip out of a mountain biking magazine, yeah. and I just kind of squashed those together into a program for myself. Uh-huh. And um, it, was, it was cool because I was about to quit the sport, and then I, I created this training plan. I took four days off, and LeMond talked about that. You know, take three or four days off every six or seven weeks, and I did that religiously. I took this time off. I started my training plan with doing these intervals, and intervals on Tuesday, and mm-hmm. or sprints on Tuesday, intervals on Wednesday, endurance on Thursday. Yeah. I uh, went to a race up in Bogus Basin, Idaho. No one was there, so I won. Nice. Uh, came back to Colorado, did a race uh, up at Steamboat, and Rishi Graywall almost lapped me in the circuit race. <laughs> And uh, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to quit. And the cross country went a little bit better. Then the next week was Crested Butte. And in the, in the criterion, we had an alley race, kind of a crit. That was the style of Colorado racing. Then it was Saturday, crit, Sunday, cross country. Yeah. Um, on again, crit on a mountain bike or on a road alley bike? Crit. Alley crit on mountain bikes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, mountain biking or crit or a circuit. Got it. Uh, but mountain biking. Yep. And, um, but then the cross country went pretty good, and I was like, okay, you know, this is, I did a little bit better. And then the next weekend, I went to a Norman National, which was the standard at the time. Yeah. Um, and I won in Park City. I'm okay. like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, I passed Tomac at the very end, and, ah. and I'm like, well, this this works. And then I won three races in a row. No I won kidding. that one. I won the Colorado race the next weekend, which a lot of the guys were at. Uh-huh. And then I won the Norman National at Winter Park, which wow. was, and then altitude was my friend always as well. Mm-hmm. So then, okay, I've established, and that's that's what it took to establish yourself as one of the the guys. Or if you're, you know, one of the ladies, it was one of the ladies. You win a Norman National, right. you're on people's radar. Sure. And I, I already was from the year before because I got third in the World Championships at Mammoth. That was pre-UCI, so there was actually a, a, a Worlds in Spa, Belgium, and a that's Worlds great. at Mammoth. Yep. And um, I, I had a great ride there. I passed a whole bunch of people past Ned and Tomac at the end to take third. And that got me a little picture in the magazine yeah. you know, three months later, yeah. a little black and white, a name to watch. Yeah. Dave Weins, Gunnison, Colorado. Being <laughs> used to the altitude really helped. Uh, something like that. Yeah. You know, and that's, but that's, that was all that the, the bike brands had to look at. And it was, the, the money right. was all from bike brands. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, in my case, it was Diamondback because they had a shop team. The shop, double shot used to be called the tune-up. Okay. Different ownership, and uh, they had it. They sold Diamondbacks, and Diamondback gave them five bikes and said, "Give these to your locals, and you have a little shop team." Yeah, 
I got one of those in 88 when I started racing pro and was able to nurture that relationship into a quote-unquote factory ride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because Mountain Bike Action coined that because they were from motocross action. Yeah. And there was a lot of crossover to, to mountain biking. They just brought a lot of the, the, the moto vernacular over. So mm -hmm. factory rider and um, rode for Diamondback for a number of years. It was, just was super lucky. Got in at the, at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was, a, that was a kick. And the Norman National Series... The, the Lifetime Grand Prix reminds me a lot of the Norman National yeah. Series. And there hasn't been anything really in the States since the Norman National Series. And the World Cup is its own thing. It's sure. super rad, but it's also... Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's, like, it's like racing pro yeah. on the road in Europe. It's a different sport. Um, but once it went away, there hasn't been anything. But the, the Lifetime Grand Prix is so interesting to me because it's the same cast of characters mm -hmm. that come together mm -hmm. six or seven times. And they all know each other. And they're all friends. And they, 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 you know, they try to beat up on each other on the bikes. Right, and then they right. you know, party together when the races are over. It's got a really similar feel to That's what the Norman National Series was like. That is so cool. Um, and then the World Cup started in 91. And then Americans were good on the World Cup for just a couple of years, and then the Euros just came in, yeah. you know, full bore, and changed, you know, just changed the dynamic. It, it was a, the natural evolution of a sport. Yeah. What does what does a Norman National feel like in '88? Is there is there an expo going on? Is there a lot of show? Is it entirely no, the race? Nothing. Nothing. And that was what was was. I, I remember crossing the finish line. In Park City, I just won this big race, like it was a big deal. Yeah, and that was in a field. Crickets. There was nothing there. Yeah, yeah, it was. There wasn't even. I didn't think there was an arch. <laughs> if there was, it was a rope, you know, and a couple yeah, poles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the significance was that then that that whatever experience transferred into a magazine article. Yeah. Three months later. Yeah. Or Vela News at the time actually covered the events. I think either biweekly or monthly. I can't remember. Yeah. But Vela News was where you got your up to date information. It sure. was only you know, a couple of weeks old. Um, but no, there was nothing. And we didn't have mechanics, swan years. None of that existed yet. You'd, I drove there with a bunch of buddies in a, in a van, a Cheech and Chong van. Yeah. And uh, I was, <laughs> you know, I was, I was sponsored at the time, which was cool. So I had a condo for me and our dogs and all of our friends. And, yeah. you know, we had the dogs in the swimming pool and, you know, it was, it was just, it was great fun. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it was super mellow. And then, you know, I think the box, the box trucks and mechanics kind of started showing up in 93 and, okay. and years and, and, uh, you know, it just became a little bit different, but initially Diamondback was just like, go, here's, here's your bike, go to the races and figure it out. Yep. And Susan, my wife, Susan Dimite, she was also on the team, but we traveled separately completely. And, um, we would, but we'd be teammates at the race, but there was no, Expo. We couldn't. There was no common place. Right. I mean, no if you set something yeah. down next to the start line. That's all you could yeah. do, like your backpack or something. Uh -huh. um, but eventually, they like the first time we went to Europe for the very first year of the World Cup. We had plane tickets to Europe. That's all we had. The rest of it was on us to figure out. And um, like in the fall, when we went back, because you'd go to Europe twice, spring and fall. In the fall, we raced in Berlin, and we're staying in Switzerland. Mike Closer kind of got a crew together to rent a chalet in Switzerland. We were there for five or six weeks. It was awesome. Yep. Um, we drove to Berlin. It was okay. a long ass way. Sure. We borrowed a car from the distributor of uh, Diamondback in Switzerland and yep. uh, a cool little station wagon. And um, but driving to Berlin was epic. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, I love that you've made the comparison to gravel with, by talking about the Lifetime Grand Prix. You made the funny comparison um, accurately about how a black and white photo basically is social media, and that's how you're getting your name out. Now we live in an age of social media and and. We can follow things live, right? I mean, there's live video coverage that you can see on social media. Uh, 
from your perspective, looking at gravel is in what is happening in the gravel world. Does it feel virtually the same? Uh, in ways, I mean, yeah. the, the, the racing is the same. Yeah. The, you line up, you start, you go out there, that part of it, and even Leadville. Leadville's changed in so many ways, but what oh hasn't gosh, changed yeah. is the dynamics of the race on the course. It's changed in that it's way more competitive, okay. that part, for sure. But it, as far as you know, men and women out there racing each other to try to, you know, to win or, or yeah. you know, achieve whatever it is their goals are, yeah. that part is absolutely, in my mind, the same. Now, the competition's higher, the technology's different. Mm-hmm. Um, how you create a career doing it has changed dramatically. Big time. I mean, really, what was so interesting or cool I thought about our time was, and I always, I always knew this from, from ski racing, all it takes is sticking your name at or near the top of the results sheet. Mm-hmm. That's, and people say, how do you get sponsored? I'm like, it's easy. Results. You stick your name yeah. at or near the top of the... Now, with social media, that does it. But there's also really, you know, there's successful folks that aren't at the top of the results sheet mm-hmm. um, because they're really good at social media and they mm-hmm. have things to say and they're, you know, what they're doing is interesting and they've got a, a following and that existed a little bit. And, and some of the early mountain bikers like myself and Susan, we were really lucky because even when the sport kind of passed us up because it became super competitive and the Euros were dominating, there was still enough folks i guess that, that were interested in that those early days tinker and me and ned and you know susan and julie i mean there's a whole bunch yeah we were able to keep you know keep going we just quit racing the world cups it was like it was you know kind of like it is now yeah yeah uh, only it's way more intense yeah. now mm-hmm. and we would just stick to norman nationals and doing other things uh and that cycling has branched out into so many different really cool uh disciplines gravel yeah. distance you yeah. know i mean the, the endurance stuff you know with leadville being kind of one of those important races the ultra endurance stuff mm-hmm. um you know the ctr the colorado trail race the yeah. great divide yeah, those yeah. things uh, i mean there's something for everybody out there a gravity gravity was was just you know they would just do downhills on the access roads and uh-huh. then all of a sudden and i would always go up and i'd climb to the top and i'd go down the downhill as, as part of my weekend at the races yeah. and then i'll remember one year at mont saint anne i go to do that and i'd done, done, done it the year before and the downhill all of a sudden was completely changed and it was gnarly yeah they had so then downhill also became legit as far as you know how challenging the terrain yeah. was and that was the end of me writing those courses yeah yeah <laughs> Um, among those names you just mentioned, the the Tinkers, the Neds, uh, John Tomac, are you? Apologies for not knowing the the history. Are you guys direct compatriots? Um, uh, the same age? I mean, did you get into the sport roughly the same time? Did they precede you? Well, Ned is Ned's almost ten years older. Okay. He was the old man of mountain bike racing when he was thirty four. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ned, you know, is he, is he going to make it another year? And he's yeah. 34. Yeah. Um, and I was 25 at that time. Okay. Tinker's a little older. He's probably right between us. Uh-huh. Um, and then Mike Closer's a little bit older. But then there were some younger guys. Rishi Graywall was younger. Daryl Price was a little bit younger. But, yeah, we were all right in that that sort of neighborhood. Okay. And, you know, we didn't, it didn't seem like we got a lot of new blood coming in to that crew for a while. Obviously, the generation kind of changed and... JHK, Jeremy Horgan Kabelski came sure. along, Adam Craig. Yeah. Uh, but those guys seemed to dominate for quite a while. And I don't think it was, I think Nika really started to become a feeder yeah. uh, and, a, and a, a talent ID mechanism, even though it wasn't ever meant to be that, which is what's so cool about it. Sure. Um, that because now the now the kids are riding and they can ride. It is nuts. Uh, I mean the speeds that yeah. that, yeah. that that these guys are going downhill 
because uh, I'll still jump into some mountain bike races and I'm just constantly looking back for if, it, if I happen to get ahead of somebody because yeah. I know they're coming, I'm just getting out of their way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and then they, but they go so fast going up too that it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm blown away by the, the skill uh, and the level today. Yep. Yep. It's, it's crazy. It is. Um, yeah, it's, I think Nike is amazing. I think you are agreeing based on your comments just now. Uh, yeah, it's just such a positive experience. It seems like the kids have a, they, they really drill home great ethos and, and that you need to be academic and you need to be paying attention to your schoolwork and not purely a bike rider who wants to be pro at 17. Right. Um, how about, certainly you're known uh, in the mountain bike community as someone who's done really well at Leadville. So how does that segue from the 90s begin your, your reign um, in Leadville? Well, I, and I, I think you said something similar. Gravel was almost like a second career. Yeah, yeah. So I had retired kind of in 2004, but I did my first Leadville in 2003. And I did my first Leadville because I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And I actually tried to get into the race in the 90s, and they wouldn't let me in. I, I played the pro card, and you're like, get out of here. No way. So I, I actually I registered in 2002 for the lottery and didn't get in. Uh-huh. I registered in 2003 and got in, and then I won, and that was great. Um but I hadn't. I didn't go. I'm going to win this as many times as I could. But I was kind of on my way, you know, out of sight or just from pro, from pro racing. Yeah. Um, then Ken Clover will call me up. So champ, are you in? You going to race again? I'm like, oh yeah, all right. You know, I will because it was good for me because it gave me something to train for, uh-huh. and I, I've always needed that. Like if I have that, so yeah. Then I did the second one, and then you know he calls me up. Yeah, and so Leadville just became something I would do. Yeah. Uh, and I always felt like, you know, this is really cool. I'm surprised more people don't do it. Maybe, you know, by being out here, we'll pull more people in. Mm-hmm. But it really didn't happen. I mean, the best the best race I had in the first four years was the first year with Bryson Perry. And uh, if he hadn't gone out so so fast and hard in the beginning, he was yeah. just gone. You know, he probably we probably would have had a great race right to the end. Uh, but he blew it about mile 80. But those next three <laughs> years, you know, just with all due respect to who was there, it wasn't that hard. I mean, I was alone as I went up Columbine and then all the way back. Yeah. And, um, but then all of a sudden when Lance started to talk about it sure. and that brought Floyd in actually, you know, Lance started talking about it. That brought Floyd in. Lance stepped out. Flo- I got that race. So Floyd raced it before Lance. 2007. Yeah. Lance okay. started talking about it and right. said, I'm Remember in for that. 2007. And then Floyd said, well, I'm in too. And Lance said, yeah, actually I got something going on that weekend, yeah. but Floyd still came. So that was cool. And so then I dusted off all my old cross country training. Cause I wasn't really training for those sure. races. I was riding a lot, but I was just going for long rides and yeah. I was dabbling in, in adventure racing at that time time did a little okay. bit of that yeah. uh left after the, the fourth win in 2006 left from the finish line to denver flew to norway for the adventure <laughs> racing world championships i'd gotten on <laughs> team nike as the third guy yeah. the third guy is like the yeah he can't navigate he, he's pretty good with a bike and that's yeah, about yeah, all yeah. and i got drugged through there and anyway we won the world championships it was crazy oh, but, that's um, but then that so then I, I just dusted off my little cross-country training. I didn't do anything really different. Mm-hmm. And I, started, I trained for the race with Floyd. Yep. And, uh, and it was cool. And it, was, you know, it, was, it brought some attention to, to Leadville. And then Lance came that next year, and it was the same. I was it almost that attention that you, were, that you thought would begin in 2003? When just by being there, it would draw attention? Well, or did it I just, and it wasn't so much that... I could drop attention to it being who I was because I, you know, just, you know, some mountain bike racer, but just that people would, would realize this is a really cool race. Yeah. And people like mountain bikers are always like, yeah, there's no single track. I'm like, yeah, it's not really a, a single track race. It's right, a, right. it's kind of a road race 
on mountain bikes mm-hmm. is what it is. Yep. And I thought it was really compelling. Um, but I just thought it would be something, but I just certainly didn't think it would go the direction it did. And when I had those thoughts about it could be something, I wasn't very specific. It was sure. just like, it seems like this would be cool if more right. competitive riders were here. Yeah, you latched onto a vibe and yeah. what it felt like. So um, yeah, go through their chronology, Floyd. Floyd, and that race was was fantastic. I mean, he was we were we were not together. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he rode me off his wheel going up Columbine. Yeah. But then as soon as it got steep, I caught him because he wasn't as good on the steeps. Okay. And then we came down together, and then he had to stop for a wheel change at Twin Lakes. Mm-hmm. And so then I got a gap on him. Mm-hmm. And then I'm feeling pretty good. I go through pipeline. I come out on the road. I look back. I can see us back in the distance, and it's Floyd. It's it's a you know his uh, orange jersey. Sure. And then. I'm like, okay, I got a pretty good lead, and I'm feeling good. And I get to the bottom of power line, and there's a—I mean, the course was empty in those days. There was yeah, nobody yeah. out there, <laughs> nobody. That second, that feed zone below column, I didn't even exist. Yeah. And there's a few guys there, and they're like, "Go, Dave! Go, Dave! Go, Floyd! Go, Floyd!" I'm like, "Go, Floyd!" No and I turn way. around, and he's you know ten meters behind me. I'm like, "Yeah." Oh, fuck. <laughs> but and I'm, I'm like, uh, my first reaction was, "Okay, I'm done. I'm toast. He's going to win." Yeah. Uh, but then I'm like, "No, actually, he doesn't like the steep stuff." So yeah. I just—I didn't look back again. Mm-hmm. Did all the Columbine, finally get. Close or not a combine, um, power line. Mm-hmm. Get close to the top, look back, he's gone. Okay, good. Descend, I get a, and get going up uh, the pavement of, of Turquoise Lake, and I get close to the top, and there's some people there. Go, Dave, go, go, Floyd, go. I'm like, yeah. no, there he is. <laughs> you know, and he just motored up behind me. Didn't get on my wheel, but he was right there. So descending St. Kevin's, going up the boulevard, turning around the boulevard, seeing, you know, he wasn't 10 meters behind me, but he was, I could see him. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm at that point, and you felt it. This is it. Yeah. If he comes up on me, I got nothing uh-huh. except this. Uh-huh. And if he's a little stronger, he's going to win. But I was able to hold him off to the line, That's and that awesome. was the best. That was the best race I had at Leadville as far as the you know the intensity of the racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lance showed up the next year, and that was that was cool. He didn't. I didn't know until two weeks before the race. Yep. Then he finally hit. Hey, it's real. Lance is coming. But in my mind, Lance is going to be there, so I'm going to prepare her the same way I did for Floyd, uh-huh. and I did so. Um, I was just like, okay, I've, I've done my preparation, mm-hmm. and uh, let's just see how this goes. And uh, that race was interesting. It was slow from the start. Uh, the races didn't used to start very hard. Yeah. We had we were going up. We we're um, a third of the way, or a quarter of the way, or a third of the way up Columbine, and we were twenty. Yeah, a group of twenty, okay. and we were soft pedaling. Yeah. It was easy. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, Lance just went to the front uh-huh. and uh, you know just pushed on the pedals a little bit more, and I was able to go with him. Yep. And I turned around, and that was it. It was just you know Lance and myself and. <laughs> At that point, um, would was, you be able to identify? Not, I'm not, not asking you to name the names, but would you know the other 18-ish riders? Or is it there were a couple of them in there because because okay. Lance and, and Floyd pulled some riders in, yeah, but not not big names. Okay. I, I I essentially got a private race with Floyd, yeah. and a private race with Lance. <laughs> that that's that's really how I look at it. Yeah. Is I was I mean how fortunate I knew I, I and I still know there were. 100 or 150 or more cyclists out in the world yeah. that could kick my ass on that day, on that course. It wasn't rocket science, but they just weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the fact that Lance went there, that really is what I think, that obviously that blew the race up. Uh-huh. I was, you know, a, a bit player in that, in that drama. Um, but the fact that I think he showed up and that I beat him, I just added a little nice story to it. If yeah. he had showed up and just won... You know, then it may not have been quite as interesting for folks. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you know, had I not been there, he he would have he would have just run away with it. Uh-huh. 
Um, but at my, we, we just traded polls and it was very cordial and we're just, you know, sure. we're not talking. So Dave, you know, are you a school teacher? You know, yeah. like, no, I just, you know, you know whatever. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's all good. And then oh, man. he goes, are we going to walk or ride the power line? I go, well, I'm, I'll, I usually push it. Yeah. I do. I don't even try to ride it because it actually feels good to get off my bike. Yeah. And push. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he never got off and we had really good conditions that year. And now of course everybody just rides it. Sure. Um, but, um, and then with 10 miles to go, I go let him pull through and he's like, I'm done. Go. Yeah, I'm like, no way. Come on. He's like, yeah. no, I'm done. Yeah. And then I just went and ended up, you know, ended up winning that one. And then of course he came back the next year and just thoroughly yeah. kicked my ass yeah. Yeah. after yeah. Uh, riding the tour. But, uh, Levi, when did Levi show up? The next year. Okay. And that's actually a race I'm really proud of because I was fourth and, mm-hmm. you know, ages behind those guys. It was Levi, JHK, Todd Wells, and then I was fourth, and Jeremiah Bishop on I rode. Yeah. Um, but I set my best time there, and it was a, a six, six thirty three, six thirty four. It's moving. Um, so I was proud of that. That's my best time ever there. And um, yeah. so, yeah, I never set out to to do all those Leadvilles, but it just kind of happened, and then it got really very interesting and cool. Mm-hmm. It was fun for me to have the challenge of Floyd showing up, Lance showing up, yeah. um, and yeah. but now. I can't even imagine what it's like. The race with right? Floyd, I vividly remember. The whole group is breaking with the cop car going uh-huh. down the hill. Just yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now they know, you it's know, and the record's a big deal. Full on into Saint and, and I yeah. saw, I, I watched. You know, you're talking about the, and I watched the start, mm-hmm. and they showed him going onto the dirt. And I'm like, I can't believe how strung out it is. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a big group going onto the dirt. That was always kind of intense with a big group. But, sure, uh, it's murderers row. Yeah. Now, yeah. and I can't even imagine. I mean, what what uh, what Keegan did there this year uh, was just phenomenal. Absolutely nuts. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's it's characteristic of the season he is having. You're just a steamboat. He broke his own record by by many minutes. Um, yeah, his ride at Leadville was remarkable. Yeah, it's really cool to see, and really cool to see. When what is the most recent year you were there to race? Uh, either. Yeah, racing was that late, the year with Levi. Okay. I just kind of drew a hard line there. I won't I won't go back and do it. I mean, yeah. I, did, I did eight and, yeah. and had, you know, as a mountain bike racer, I've had bad days. Sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a quitter. So if I'm having a bad day, I'll finish the race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I finished the World Cup, the you know, the second year, 90, 1992, the first World Cup of the season in Hoofley's, Belgium. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm going over there like, you know, I'm that big, you know, hotshot mountain bike racer. I got a trainer now and, and I was terrible. Yeah. They were taking down the finish line when I finished. They were, you know, they're like it, like the podium had been done, but you know, I was always like that. I'm like, no, there's character to be built in this experience. It, yeah. it isn't all, you know, good results and winning. It's, mm-hmm. it's taking the, the highs and the lows because they're all really important. Mm-hmm. Accurate. Um, jumping way back to the very beginning, how the conversation started growing up in metropolitan Denver, what, were your parents up to? Were they athletes? How did how did you gravitate to the outdoors in the first place? Yeah, no, they weren't athletic, but they exposed us to a lot of great stuff. Like we started skiing, and they weren't skiers at all. Okay. I mean, my dad grew up in central Kansas, my mom in southeast Idaho, but we lived <laughs> in Denver, and so we're going skiing, we're going camping. Yeah. And the skiing, I think, and my brother was really into skiing, uh, more, more so than I was. I mean, I liked it, but he was really into it and still is. Uh, and then we got exposed to camping, and then... I think, you know, getting the jobs and again, my brother, Brian, he got the job. It's a place called Sports International and it was basically a specialty alpine ski shop. Mm-hmm. That really turned me on to what was outdoor rec at that time. And we, we went backpacking and fishing and uh, just, you know, a lot of, and we loved the mountains. Growing up in Denver was, uh, you know, the mountains were right there. 
so that was really, I think, the what got us close. So our fo- yeah, the parents weren't athletic. Um, you know, yeah. I wanted to play football. I had to ask to play football. Like it wasn't them saying, "Hey, so what do you want to do? Do you want to play sports?" Yep. They supported everything we did, but yeah. uh, it was a different time uh, with parents. And they just, they, they were, it was great. They would, you know, allow us to pursue what we wanted to pursue and, and yeah. um, you know, bought us bicycles and, and, you know, but they were just to get around. I mean, you, sure. you know, now parents really just buy their kid a bike and just send them out yeah. without a helmet because yeah. <laughs> yeah. helmets didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, both my brother and I just gravitated toward the mountains and, the, and then, you know, outdoor wreck. And yeah. for me, that was whitewater kayaking, which was really displaced quickly by mountain biking. And so, you know, I still have my gear. It's on my boat. It's an old boat. <laughs> Did a, a river trip a couple of years ago up on the Green River with a crew. Nice. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, that's a different chapter. The, you know, I, I really pushed the limits in skiing and mountain biking until I got to that point where, oh, this is serious now. Yeah. Like what was hair, you know, hair kayaking, really challenging, dangerous yeah. rivers. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really cut off for this mentally. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll pull back. And then mountain biking suited me well at the time. Because bikes had brakes, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you didn't. I mean, today you you really have to descend really fast mm-hmm. if you want to be competitive. That wasn't the case when I was racing. Interesting. Um, right now, you're. I don't think you're able to be competitive being a cautious descender. And some of these guys are cautious, and they're going ten miles an hour faster downhills than I yeah, would go. Yeah. Um, but that's. But they have more control, probably. Mm-hmm. It was a different time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think. There was a New York Times article about the elevation of all athletic achievements, and they were even talking about in darts and how much better we are at darts here in 2023 than they were 20 years ago. Yeah. But there's still so much room for improvement. So you wonder, what does the state of downhill look like in another 20 years? I mean, how fast are they going? And it's thanks to NICA and programs like that where kids are riding at such a young age that it raises the level. It will continue to progress. Yeah. Um, I... Grew up skiing for the longest time. I wanted to be a professional skier. I know you mentioned that. I mean, give me that little anecdote where you said you wanted to pursue skiing as an 18-year-old. Yeah, so it was ski racing. I just became interested in it through friends. But as an as an 18-year-old or 17, like, it got exposed to downhill racing and, yeah. and that. And, oh, yeah, I could do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a, it's, a, it's a fascinating sport. And so I'm going to do it. I'm going to mm-hmm. start entering races. And I realized mm-hmm. how I could do it. And I'm going to go to, a, I'm going to become part of a, a club and I'm going to get coaching. Yeah. And I should be able to do this. But I mean, it was very, you know, quickly, painfully obvious that I wasn't very good. <laughs> um, but, but, but how could you be? You know, you're not going to just you know, start playing hockey as an 18 year old and jump on the ice. And, and even though you've ice skated a little bit mm-hmm. and be good. But it was a great experience because I, I became a better skier. Yeah. My skiing improved. I learned a lot. And I think I probably took some lessons away from that competition. And, and I did. I raced downhill. And I got to the point where I was doing, like, the Rocky Mountain Championship Series, mm-hmm. which was described to me as having one World Cup turn, you know. And so, <laughs> and, and you know what? I couldn't get through that turn. Yeah. Like, you just haul an ass. Yeah. And then it was a rough, you know, big turn. And yeah. I couldn't even, I, could, I crashed every single time mm-hmm. in that turn. I couldn't even get through that. And so then I was like, yeah, a whole course of those? That right. would be a little bit a tall order. Okay. Um, so then I transitioned into extreme skiing was what we called it at the time. And because at that, at that time there was only Warren Miller and Scott Stump films. There weren't a bunch of films sure. uh, and, and Glenn Plake and Scott Schmidt were sort of the heroes okay. uh, of, of extreme skiing and, you know, skiing the steeps and all that. 
Uh, and so that's why I went to Jackson, and Jackson Hole, there was a guy named Doug Coombs who yep, was there. absolutely. And I met Doug, you know, at the top of Snow King, you know, in, in November. They opened Snow King, but the lifts were broken. And I'm like, well, I'm going to sidestep up to the top. <laughs> and I get up there, and Doug's up there, and we became... Uh, not, you know, great friends, but we became acquaintances and I skied with him yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but that was eye-opening because I learned how good, you know, he was and people like him and how, how skilled they are. And also how, you know, what their, their, you know, the mental part of that game where mm-hmm. it's super sketch and dangerous. And so that was just, and so kayaking, I had the same experience. I pushed the limits. Yeah. I, I paddled. This is sitting in a river up in Alaska with this guy and um, was just going, you know what, this is, I, this is just. You know, I just don't like this that much. It's, it's not really worth it to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I survived some of those experiences, and then I pulled back. And right at that time, mountain bike racing came into my life. I came back to Western, mm-hmm. um, started racing, and then that took me away. And um, you know, for my senior year in college, I had a, a you know a professional contract to race, mm-hmm. which was great. And and so that just kept me going. And uh, you know, we were among the first remote workers. Yeah, we could live anywhere we wanted to, and I could up and, and move to. You know, I could go to Sonoma County in the winter for six weeks yeah. and do great, great road riding, and mm-hmm. uh, it was cool. And I've been very protective of that lifestyle ever since, and it's kept me from getting any sort of a job or even going down the entrepreneurial road because I want to spend time with my kids. Yeah, I wanted to when they were when they were growing up, and so I had that freedom and flexibility. I mean, I went to school with them every single day, and we never drove. Actually, right. we drove once a year on, on walk-to-school day. Yeah. I would drive the kids. But other than that, <laughs> we, we walked or we rode bikes. And even in high school, yeah. they were great. They never said, Dad, don't don't come with me anymore. In high school, I, yeah. would, I would take them to school. So I had I, I guarded that freedom, and certain certain career paths are going to take that that away. Yeah. And I don't I don't regret that. Um, but and I was you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneurial minded person. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, man, if you're you're really going to go, then you're going to be working 12 hours a day every yep. day. Yep. And uh, I just don't I just don't want to do that at this point. Well, yeah, here we are in your office. And over my shoulder is a very cool photo of I believe you have twins. Yeah, those are our twins. Uh, how old are they now? It's a 23. And where are they geographically? One in Denver uh-huh. um, and one in Burbank, California. And yeah. they don't ride bikes. No kidding. They hate mountain biking. Yeah. <laughs> Did they explore the outdoors or what's their what's their jam? Um, ben is a vocal performer. He loves music. Yeah. So he's he's all about singing, not not much physical. Um, Sam is pursuing a career in film. Okay. And he's actually a really accomplished scooter rider. He got into riding a scooter when he was, okay. you know, whatever, 10 or 11. So yeah. he can, he's, he's really good on a scooter. You've seen, you know. Yeah, I took Hazel to the skate park in Crescent Butte the other day. Immediately she's like, I want a scooter. I'm like, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. So he, and, uh, so, but that, that, that's just kind of the thing he does on the side, but he's pursuing a career in film. Okay. Uh, our older son, Cooper, he did some bike racing. He went to Fort Lewis and, yep. and Durango and he raced on the Fort Lewis team. And yeah. Um, you know, got to represent them at nationals a couple of years. One year they won the national title and, yeah. um, and he and I are actually supposed to be in Kyrgyzstan right now doing the Silk Road yeah. mountain race. Yeah. We were all signed up for that. But when I got hurt, that went out the window. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so he's, he, uh, he's going to be trying to go to medical school. Okay. Um, so he took his MCATs, he's getting his application together. He's looking at the fall of 24, Yeah. but he still loves to ride. He's going to come up here and do the gunny grinder, which is our local right gravel on. race. He did the growler, which is our local mountain yeah. bike race. So he gets out there. Perfect. Yeah. I like it. Um, yeah. A lot of folks are like, oh, it's so cool to see your kids ride bikes and I can't wait to see them, you know, with their, the genes from your, their parents, they're going to be great. And it's like. You want your kid to be happy doing whatever they do, yeah. and whether or not our kids ride a bike. I right. you just want them to be, You want them to be happy and content. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh at the top of the conversation, I said the second to last time that we exchanged messages, it was regarding where we were geographically, Grand Junction versus Gunnison. The last time I think we exchanged messages outside of yesterday, you said that you had listened to a podcast that I'd done with Payson, and I opened up about a whole bunch of health woes and setbacks that I've suffered through because you had also had an a orthopedic injury. Uh, Willing to talk about that? Sure. What? What is the? What have you done? In so many words. <laughs> so uh, it was, uh, you know, a really great ski season. We had tons of snow, and so I was skiing almost every day, whether it was backcountry or Nordic or whatever. Uh, yeah. Dabble in ski mo racing. Oh yeah, and and yeah. I, I love that. We've got you know two great races here. Sure. Um, and I was going to travel down to Telluride and do another one called Tellurando. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was March. You know, 18th or so, and but on March 12th, I'm up at Crested Butte, skin a couple laps before the, the resort opens, and then go hit the lifts. And it was a great soft day. It wasn't a powder day, but the you know it had been snowing, so it was super soft and just having a blast out there, skiing alone, yeah. and uh, you know skiing some challenging lines, and you know the lines I know really well up there, and the snow was fantastic. And I'm just you know having a blast, and sure. all of a sudden I'm skiing down this this line, and I come out on the apron below the the, the trees, and I'm making a hard turn to the right and I'm accelerating because then I'm going to carry some speed over to get across a flat and down to the lift. And I don't know what I hit. I think you talked about this too in, in the big sugar crash. Um, either hit a frozen chunk or yeah. I hit a soft pocket because there were no rocks. There were no trees. I, this apron had been covered for, yeah. for weeks. And my right ski just, just came to a dead stop. And I just felt my femur just crack oh and break. Um, and, and I think before I even hit the ground... And I had just I just skied through some some like teenage boys that are you know you're up there skiing and there and it was all good, yeah. um, and I think I before I even hit the ground I said I'm really hurt I need I'm going to need help or yeah. I'm going to need the patrol something like that, <laughs> and then ragdolled through the snow and uh, came to rest in kind of a seated position and I look up and my ski boot is up by my head okay and I should have freaked out and gotten, you know screamed. But I didn't because I, I wasn't even surprised because I kind of knew that it had happened. Is it behind you or in front of you? It was just right here. Oh, my word. Next to me. And, and so I, all I did was I uh. reached up and I grabbed it and I put it where it was supposed to be. Yeah. And, and it, you know, and, and then those boys came down and, and they sent, you know, one of them to go call the patrol. Yeah. And then, um, and I knew, I mean, I knew what had happened. I just, you know, shattered my femur. Smack in the middle? It splintered. It was a con, con, com, comminuted fracture, okay. which just means... Everywhere. Pulverized. Yeah. 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 Uh, my elbow became bone dust. Your femur became bone dust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just, I'm just sitting there and, uh, and it was weird, you know, I, I just, you know, cause I've, I had at least 15 minutes before the first patrol showed up mm-hmm. and I'm just sitting there and I, I was, I was very, you know, philosophically reflective immediately. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Cause I was all fired up for Tellurando, the Grand Traverse, which is our partner's race from Crestview to Aspen, my partner, Stuby, Jason Stuby, you know, we're, you know, that was two weeks out. Mm-hmm. And then the, um, you know, the Silk Mountain Road Race. Yeah. And so I'm like, because that, that's the kind of stuff that drives me. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, yeah. Anyway. Big iconic events. Okay. No Telluranda. That's not happening. Yep. No Grand Traverse. That's not happening. I'm certainly not going to Kyrgyzstan now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can I do? Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. I, I wasn't freaking out. It wasn't that painful or I don't remember it. But because I'm just sitting there, and I'm feeling okay. I know if I if I lean back, it started to hurt. And so I asked, well, these boys stayed with me three three like 14, 15, 16. Wow. I said, hey, could one of you guys come down here and, and support my back? If I yeah. lean back, my leg starts hurting. Like, oh, 
kid comes down and he's pushing on my back. I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> After about a minute, <clears throat> he says, hey, do you want you guys come down here and help me? My arms are getting tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they repositioned and the bigger kid got to where he was, you know, back to back with me. But that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just, I was reflecting, you know, so I'm disappointed. But I also, you know, had a, uh, you know, a clear understanding of what had happened and what it meant. And that it's just, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do what I can do. And we'll just, you know, see where this goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then eventually the, the patrol shows up and it's a, a, you know, a woman who I went to school with. Hey, Krista, it's Dave <laughs> no Wings. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I broke my femur. Oh, we'll call the, we'll call the guy with the meds. Um, so the guy with the meds comes down. Then there's the three or four others. And they're like, we don't want to move you until we get some, get some fentanyl in you. Wow. Um, I guess they trust me to the good meds. <laughs> and I remember I'm looking at my hand. I remember pulling my phone out, no service. I couldn't call Susan, put my phone back. Yeah. They tried to get it in one, blew it out. Tried to get it in another, blew it out. Let's try his left hand. I'm going, come on, you got to get this in me. Yeah. And then they got it to go. And I'm like, good. And so then they lifted me onto something, and that's something onto the sled. Uh-huh. But I remember the sled ride down. You know, they cover you up. And I always see the people getting the sled ride down. I'm like, sure. oh, I hope that's never me. And so, right. you know, that was me. Right. Um, there's a point on the skin lap up where you it gets really steep up to this cat road. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard. You slip at the last minute. And I remember... Feeling dropping off because yeah. I know the route down yeah. the mountain was the same route that I would you know I'd done twice that morning, um, and then it became the tour of the ceilings. Maybe you've had this before. Yeah, the ceiling of the foyer to go into the mountain clinic, the ceiling of the mountain clinic, the ceiling of the next room in the mountain uh-huh. clinic, the ceiling of the ambulance, uh-huh. the ceiling of the Gunnison ER, the ceiling of the surgery. You know, mm-hmm. and then you know, <clears throat> a plate that you know that runs the length of my femur because it's wow. broken from from you know, end to end and split. Yeah. And then lots and lots of screws, mm-hmm. and uh, and then just you know uh, a new life. But um, you know, it, it's I, I felt really fortunate in having you know lost some mobility, but still having actually pretty good mobility compared to what it could have been. Mm-hmm. I felt really fortunate, and also I was up there making my own decisions, sure. big smile on my face yeah. when it happened. So I I don't complain. And, um, you know, I've come along when I, when I listened to that podcast with you, mm-hmm. then I'm like, you know, I got one big broken bone. Yeah. Um, you had a lot more going on. And then you turned me on to that other podcast, yeah. Michael Valgren. And I'm like, you know, that was, and I remember I'm, I'm sitting on this hand cycle because before the incision healed, all I could do is turn this hand cycle ergometer mm-hmm. up at the college. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't like it, but I was listening to a lot of podcasts and it was great. But, you know, I, I drew a lot of, um, of um, you know, good pos- positivity from from you know hearing your story, uh, yeah. which I never got that dark. But I'm very lucky. I had a great. I mean, I, I was on the main floor of the house, yeah. but you know, we've got a great place to be. I've got a great wife. I've got a great friend network. My family was super supportive. Yeah. Um, I could have been in a lot worse situation. So, and then I'm also old. I mean, I'm 58. Yeah. Um, I'm already. My body's already starting to decline. I already can't do some of the things I used to do. Uh, this was just a big step down. And then all of that training and preparation just gets shifted into, you know, re- recovering from this injury. Sure. And people are like, are you going to be 100%? I'm like, probably not, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be whatever I'm going to be. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really just happy to have a leg yeah. and I can walk. I mean, you saw me, I got a little bit of a, a limp, but haven't used the cane for a couple of weeks now. Nice. And, and I can ride a bicycle. That's the funny thing is yeah. I can I can actually get on my bike and go for good mountain bike ride. I don't have that standing power to get up and over technical things. And yeah. um, I'm pretty cautious, but I'm out there, you know, doing it. So I feel really, 
fortunate and is it an experience I would choose? Of course not. Right, but right, right. Um, in the big picture, um, it's nothing. And there's so many people suffering from, from so much more. Yeah. And, they, and it wasn't necessarily something that was inflicted on them that when they were out doing something that they enjoyed doing. Right. Um, so, yeah. Terrific perspective. Um, well, you have... You have things that occupy your time outside of athletics, although I suppose indirectly they are related to athletics. You are the executive director of IMBA. Is that correct? Yeah. Where did that career launch? So it launched at the very beginning of mountain biking because as soon as I started riding my bike around here, I realized we don't have any trails. Yeah. And so I became involved in trail advocacy, whatever that meant in you know the late 80s, and helped develop a trail system out of Hartman Rocks. And so a lot of those trails out there um, you know, have me and my friends' fingerprints on them. Yeah, that's and, so cool. uh, So I uh, was involved in, in that from the beginning and eventually started an organization here, not until 2006, called Gunnison Trails. Okay. And then basically under the Signal Peak system is a new system of trails over here uh, right behind the campus of the university. Uh, you know, worked on that for 11 years from, from you know, the, the vision idea to first shovel in the ground. <laughs> and that's been a great, uh, you know, boost to the community and trails are public health. So those are, those are trails right here in town. Is yep. that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was cruising through town and someone said, ah, oh, I got to go to Signal Peak. And I was like, well, cruising through town, I got to hear what the greatest local stuff is. Yeah. They're not super technical. Harman's has, you know, if you like the tech, I mean, Harman's is a mix of fast flowy and then tech, technical rock moves where the granite has come up. Okay. Signal's more big views. You can climb a little bit more over there. There's a little bit more relief. Okay. Uh, the trails are, I mean, they're a little technical in places, but yeah. in the evenings, uh, it's just phenomenal. The valley lights up. You can see sure. the San Juans. You can see the Cunnell Divide. You can see up to Crested Butte. Oh, that's so cool. uh, it's more that. I mean, if you're looking to just challenge yourself all the time, technically, it's it's not that good. But if you just like, you know, because some of us ride for fitness yeah. and for you know the mind clearing benefits of of pedaling a bicycle sure. in the outdoors, uh-huh. uh, and a lot of people I think ride for that, and it's a great system for that. Okay. Um, so I was involved in that, and, and so there for a while, I just had cobbled together, you know, that was a part-time position. I did a little bit of stuff for Lifetime Fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, Ergon has been a great supporter of mine in the bicycle industry for years, yeah. uh, and the Topeak Ergon team, and um, Canyon Bicycles. Um, that's been fantastic. So I just had a, a, a sort of a, you know, a mashup of things that I did, and then Joined the IMBA board of directors, and then as soon as I joined in 2016, IMBA Subaru pulled out and IMBA spiraled down, and yeah. I was in a position to come in and and not so much lead the organization as fill the chair for a while uh-huh. because I'm not a, I'm not a great manager and I'm not a great administrator, and I don't aspire to be either of those. So I'm uh-huh. not I'm not going to you know work on that. Um, but we've got a great CEO now, a guy named Kent McNeil, and um, he's done a fantastic job, and I, I help where I can. I'm happy to fall in behind him and and do the things that I can do. And, you know, it's working on the fundraising side and positioning and things like that. Um, but the nice part about my injury was I could still work. I mean, that I got hurt on a Sunday, surgery was Sunday night. I, was, I got out of the hospital on Monday and I'm on my laptop. You know, I'm able to work just yeah. because I can. Yep. <laughs> and it was yep. a nice thing to have. So I was very fortunate in that respect. But, um, you know, I, I just think, and you know this as a trail user, trails are so important to, to people and to communities. And not just mountain biking, but walking, trail running, mountain mm-hmm. biking, mm-hmm. you know, and equestrians in some places, mm-hmm. uh, and motorized use. But I'm I'm very um, keen on on trail based recreation and fitness for people, 
And the more opportunities people have to get out and, and walk, run, or ride bikes on trails near where they live, yep. the happier and healthier they're gonna be. Okay, There's yes. an economic element to it um, that, that helps communities as well. So at Inbo, we're just trying to help communities realize great trails. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just for mountain biking, which is really why I you know, created Gunnison Trail. I didn't create the Gunnison Mountain Bike Association. I created Gunnison Trails for, and we focus on that, just that walking, trail running, and mountain biking. And, and to that point, I've heard, I've heard you talk about recreation here in America as being very siloed. So like mountain bikers are mountain bikers and trail runners are trail runners and equestrians are equestrians. And in, in this comment that you made, um, you were comparing it to like the natural gas or, or oil world, which, you know, they're all cruising down the same pipeline, pun intended. So can you expand upon that? I mean, how, how recreation, we still... We're not all holding hands and being friendly just yet. Right. And we're trying, actually. And so Imba, um, and I was a big part of this, we created a movement called Trails Are Common Ground. Uh-huh. You go to trailsarecommonground.org or they're on Instagram. Um, and it's a fledgling movement, but it's the trail runners, it's the hikers, it's the mountain bikers, it's the equestrians, and it's right up to motorized users like yeah. motos. Yeah. And the whole point of Trails Are Common Ground is, first and foremost, Inclusivity. We need to make sure that everybody feels safe and welcome on the trails mm-hmm. and that everybody has the opportunity um, to, to recreate on the trails. The second pillar is just responsible use and etiquette. And when you think about it, etiquette is its not just a couple things you need to know. There's quite a bit the, the, to, to know there, especially if you're riding a mountain bike, a horse, or a moto. Yeah. Um, oh, what do I do? I'm coming up on a bunch of horses or there's blind corners everywhere. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the etiquette, then we decided, okay, let's lead with kindness. If everyone's just kind, that's going to help a lot. <laughs> Heck yeah. And the second part is, is being aware, just awareness. Like, just, you know, look around a little bit. Don't just plug in your, your tunes and tune out and think you're the only person there. Mm-hmm. And the third piece of that responsible use is knowledge. You know, build your knowledge base of what to do in certain situations so that you can, and then we're going we're to reduce those opportunities for conflict. The third pillar, the one that's really interesting, is modernizing trail systems so that they function better for all users. And it's not going to apply everywhere, but in busy places where you've got a lot of folks competing for that same narrow piece of trail, mm-hmm. uh, it gets really challenging. But there's some techniques, and it really comes down to um, experience zones where you can say, hey, this trail is directional and for mountain bikes only. Mountain bikes aren't allowed on these trails over here. They're just for walkers and runners or horses or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you can do within a system. Oh, and then this is a shared a shared trail, so we have to be more careful on this trail. Or mountain bikes can go up this trail. They can't come back down it. But it just happens to take you to three or four options you can go down. Yeah. So let's really sharpen our pencil on the planning and design aspect of trails yeah. so that they function better. And they'll actually have a, you know, they'll, they'll be able to accommodate more users. You'll have decreased opportunities for conflict and everybody will have a better experience because we've all seen it hikers getting off the trail for tons of mountain bikers or if you want to go ride your mountain bike and you can never really let go of your brakes because there's other mountain bikers coming at you or so again it's not going to work everywhere but there's some really there's some really progressive systems out there and the one that we talk about most often is corner canyon Mm -hmm. which is in uh, metro salt lake um, draper city 100 miles of trail and within that 100 miles, there's a lot of shared use, but there's also a lot of directional mountain bike yep. and what they call hike and hoof, which is hikers, trail runners, and horses only. Mm-hmm. And there aren't tons of horses there, I don't think. Uh, and the system works really well, and they can accommodate you know, the NICA teams training there. I'm not sure if they have competitive events or not. But as trails become more important to us, 
we can really plan and design so many elements into the trail system yeah. that it's got an event overlay. So that a Nika, you know, usually if, if Nika wants to come to a place, they have to figure out how, how do we hold an event here? Where are we going to put the start and finish and what are we going to use? You can design that stuff in. So it's yeah. turnkey. A promoter can just come in and drop an event in. Yep. It's got a safe start. It's got a safe finish. It's got a lot of single track, but never too much in one in one you know dose so that you can't pass. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can you can build a lot into a, a system if you really you know be technical with your planning and design. Yeah, you can renovate systems too. That's a little a little trickier, but that's that that can be done too. So that's trails are common ground in a nutshell: inclusivity, responsible use, and here are some some ways that we can make better trails that are going to function better for people and, and give better experiences to everybody. So we are trying to bring those silos together yep. and we've had a certain amount of success, but that's going to be an ongoing <laughs> continuing chore for sure. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Um, but for, for a greater, greater purpose, taking an even larger step back, what is Imba's mission statement and not verbatim, but is it, is it trail advocacy? <clears throat> Helping, um, Communities realize great trails uh-huh. um, because it's the, the you know the, the Waltons and what they've done in, in uh, Northwest Arkansas has really you know a lot of people are are seeing that and they're like oh you know we want that you know what can we how can we do that uh-huh. so there's a lot of different mechanisms uh, we, we've we've identified trail champions as being really important you know we need one person who can really drive sure. uh, a movement I was a trail champion here I mean I was out there. Digging at Hartman Rocks, and yeah. eventually the trail started falling apart. I organized the, the the work days and get volunteers out there. Eventually, create the organization, and then propose you know three new trail systems: one over here, one over there, and a, mm-hmm. a trail between Crested Butte and Gunnison, which would be amazing, but, yes, which hasn't was. happened. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but trail champion is really important, and we need to, to to resource and educate trail champions on what they need to do. What's the process? Because the the process to to attain trails is really the same. Uh, you got to go through the same steps. You need to have a vision. You need to have access. You need a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need funding at some point. I mean, volunteers are great, but volunteers aren't going to build the kind of systems that that, that are in demand now. Yeah. And we're really trying to make trails and move it out of the, oh, yeah, volunteers scratching in the dirt to, no, it's a professional trail building industry. Sure. And, and it costs money, just like the rec center and you know the skate park and all those other recreational amenities that are line items in city budgets that also have line items for maintenance. Yep. Trails are the same, and you know what? They actually probably appeal to a broader cross section of your community than any of those other amenities. Yeah, that's so awesome. Imba is really trying to pull trails into that realm of of it. Think of it as hard hard infrastructure, just like those other amenities, yep. and plan for it and and fund it in such a way. Because the ultimate, you're making your citizens and your visitors happier, healthier, and more prosperous. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So, I mean, in a nutshell, all of Imba's work goes towards resourcing local clubs, if that's who it is, mm-hmm. or a, a, a community, if, it, if it's the, the municipality, or if it's one individual, a NICA mom who's like, how come we have to drive 50 miles to ride yeah. bikes here? Well, you don't, but here's the process and it's a it's a long game to get mm-hmm. trails mm-hmm. Um, and there's a but so to, to assist and to help people realize that and there's organizations that have been around for a long time that don't need that assistance they've got that expertise mm-hmm. um, but whenever sometimes certain things come up and imba can be helpful um, if there's a, a government affairs you know, element of a forest service BLM um, but a lot of organizations are high functioning and imba started those way back in the day way before my time there Imba created the playbook for how this how this works, and is that 
is that looking at something like New England and saying NIMBA, New England Mountain Bike Association? I mean, I guess how does how does the, the whole puzzle fit together, both geographically and this overarching umbrella of? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and and the way it fits together in a perfect world, and New England's a good example of that is all those chapters of NIMBA mm-hmm. are your local, you know, boots on the ground, yeah. and then NIMBA ties them all together at that regional level and has that regional expertise, yeah. and then NIMBA is the national the national organization. Um, we don't have a lot of interaction with NEMBA. In fact, there was really some bad blood there for a while before okay. my time between IMBA and NEMBA, but I think we've repaired those bridges. Um, they've gone through a couple EDs, and there's a new ED, and we met with her. Uh, it's been six months or so ago now. The Vermont Mountain Bike Association, Nick Bennett, does yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah. work. And I was just on, that was who I was on a call with earlier. He's part of the Trails Are Common Ground Steering Committee. Yeah. And so, I mean, Nick is crushing it in Vermont. Yep. And, you know, IMBA doesn't have a, a lot to do with that or, or maybe anything, but every once in a while, Nick will pick our brain about something. And that's really what we need to do is not worry about who gets credit for what, sure. but we're all trying to work together. Um, but so in those two places, you've got a really good local, regional or state, and then national. Mm-hmm. Um, SORBA, the Southern Off-Road Bicycling Association, is part of, of, uh, of IMBA. And so the Southeast United States is covered pretty well. Lots of Sorba chapters, 40 or 50. Yeah. And then you've got Sorba uh, as, a, as an entity to kind of bring them all together. And then IMBA on top of that. Yeah. California has formed um, the CAMTB. Um, they, they're doing fantastic work, Mike Anzalone and, and folks out there. And Colorado's trying to organize and they're, they're you know, getting, yeah. it, getting it going. Evergreen up in, up in Washington State is where Nick came from. Yep, that's you know, right. Yvonne crushes it up at, at Evergreen. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, they're doing it on their own. Um, but it's good to have that national voice too. And also just to, to, to break down any barriers that may have existed, you know, previously between some of these organizations, because there was a a time when there was the thought that, you know, IMBA needed to, you know, control everything. And now it's no, we're just a resource. How can IMBA help? What can we do to help? And in some cases we don't have anything to offer, but in a lot of cases, We've got communities going, we don't have a clue. We don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. How do we get this process rolling? Yep. And we can really do that. And the planning piece is, is so important. Yep. It's got to be kind of fascinating or very fascinating or just part of the uh, general day-to-day how the whole conversation started with general recreation, right? I mean, it's in the abbreviation IMBA, mountain bike. But it's not purely mountain bike trails because they are sometimes equestrian. They are trail walking, trail hiking, trail running. And so, yeah, fitting uh, the the mountain bike piece and creating the infrastructure that's going to benefit everyone, yeah. everyone who wants to get outdoors. Well, it's really, and this, that's an important point because the mountain bikers have historically been the ones that are always thinking about new trails. Yeah. Hikers aren't going, wow, we could have a trail over there. We get and trail we runners, walk they're, they're not that. doing that. But the mountain bikers, we want new trails everywhere. And then, yeah. and then we're, we're fixing our trails and we're just obsessed with trails and we show up for the trails. And a lot of the mountain bikers will go, well, you know what? Those guys don't ever show up. I'm like, you know when they show up? They show up when the trail's built yeah. and we need to accommodate them. Right, right, right. So even though they're, they're maybe not showing up as much or as often or it wasn't their idea to create the system, they're always going to show up and use it and you can't blame them yeah. for that. So let's make sure that we recognize their needs and not just some in some token fashion, but give those other user groups high quality experiences because we're giving ourselves high quality experiences too, which is mm-hmm. directional trails in, yeah. in a lot of situations because... 
let's face it, these kids and adults, they ride now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people yeah. rip on bikes. And I can, you can ha- try to have the best sight lines in the world, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of places with vegetation in the summer where you're going to have blind turns. Yeah. And you know, we all know what that's like. So <laughs> it's, there, there's so much more that we can do, and trails are so valuable to people in every community. You, I want you know you to roll into every community and go where are your trails? Oh, our trails are over there. Right, there's a right. pump track and there's right. a skills loop, and you know there's you know all these things. But it is more than mountain biking. But mountain bikers are the ones that have really driven the evolution of trails. And Emba yeah. was at the very beginning of that, mm-hmm. and now we've got tons of expertise out there, and we just need to you know in some cases bring that expertise together and and you know take advantage of it and disseminate all that information so that you know more and more communities can benefit from trails beautifully spoken um in an effort to wrap up and let you get on with your next obligation we wrap with three questions so number one favorite place to ride a bike number two what is the number one place that you'd like to ride a bike that you've never ridden and three with whom living or otherwise fictitious nonfiction, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride Oh, um, the, the favorite place to ride, I think now is probably exploring trails in the San Juan mountains to the Southwest. And, you know, I've I've done a little bit of bike packing in there and, and, Mm -hmm. um, and, and love the bike packing and know there's a lot more down there. I love kind of exploring and, um, with height, you know, if I have to push my bike a bunch during a ride, that's okay with me. I don't mind that because that's part of, that's how you get to see some of these places. And, and these are trails that aren't bike optimized. They're just trails that happen to be there Yeah, and and they're fantastic. Um, what was the second one? Where would you like to ride that you've never ridden? You know, right now there's so many places in, in the world, but I'm enamored with sort of the Eastern Europe, Yeah, you know, the Carpathian mountains, and oh, yeah. for, for whatever reason, and it isn't, doesn't have to do with, with trails. I mean, if there are great trails there, that's cool, but it's more just to be in a place with that kind of deep history. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the Alps before, and the Alps are awesome, yeah. um, but there's some mystique for me around Eastern Europe, yeah. Um, yeah, which yeah. is really interesting. And then who would I like to ride with? I mean, I love riding with my wife. She's my favorite person in the whole world to ride with, but... Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't ever have somebody that I think about. You know, I'd really like to ride with you. <laughs> right? Likewise. <laughs> um, and uh, next time you come through, uh-huh. um, we'll go for a bike ride. I like but, that. Uh, you know, I ride alone a lot. And um, if I don't ride uh, alone, I'm riding with Susan. Mm-hmm. Or every once in a while, I'll do, you know, some, some buddies up in Crested Butte. But I'm not a big social rider. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love that. I mean, I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. You know, bikepacking alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to bikepack with some other folks, too. But, um, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you if, – and not everyone likes to ride alone. I'm with you. I, <clears> I tend to ride alone. I mean, I, I, it has to do with scheduling. It has to do with, oh, here's my hour window. But, yeah, for any number of reasons. It's especially just with always, kids. Especially <laughs> with kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, we made it. A few minutes shy of your next deadline. Uh, Dave, I really, really appreciate the time, the insight, the conversation, the stories. So thank you very much. And thank you for looking me up and uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.